0: I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Craig Weiss, co-founder of Enjoy, an electronic cigarette company that sells the Enjoy King. An e-cigarette is a non-combustion cigarette that contains nicotine and strives to have the look and feel and plume of a traditional cigarette. Craig and his brother Mark started the company in 2006 after Mark discovered e-cigarettes or e-cigs on a trip to China where they have become increasingly popular. Craig is a patent lawyer and graduate of the University of Pennsylvania. Welcome.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: How does the e-cigarette work?
1: So it's an electronic nicotine delivery system. And what an electronic cigarette is, is it has a battery or power source. It has a heating element. And then it has a liquid solution that contains Uh, nicotine and flavorings. And the nicotine at the end of the day is what smokers crave. And so the integrated circuit chip tells the battery to power the heating element and then the heating element will vaporize the liquid and turn it into a vapor that is inhaled by the, the smoker. And then when they exhale it, it has the appearance of smoke, but in fact, it's not smoke.
0: The two ingredients are nicotine and polypropylene glycol. Is that correct?
1: Well, so different, different electronic cigarettes have different solutions. You have the nicotine, you have flavorings of some kind, and then either propylene glycol or glycerin or some combination of the two of them.
0: What kind of battery is in these cigarettes, e-cigarettes?
1: Yeah, so typically you would see a lithium-ion battery or a lithium polymer battery, the types of batteries, technology that you'd see in pretty much every other uh, ubiquitous uh, consumer product that you have in America, cell phones, uh, laptops, and the like.
0: Now, historically, they've been quite clunky, these e-cigarettes, and some have needed a USB port to recharge their batteries. Do your batteries need to be recharged?
1: No. So we we took great pains to make the product as familiar as possible to a smoker. And so we uh, made the decision to make our Enjoy King, our flagship product, uh, disposable. So again, to be just like uh, a cigarette. So there's no charging. There's no uh, plugging it in.
0: I want to talk about the history of e-cigarettes. It's my understanding that the first attempt by RJR Nabisco uh, was in 1988 when they came out with their Smokeless Premier, which Some critics said, smells like a fart.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't a very popular product. I think they spent hundreds of millions of dollars, and it was a a pretty big failure. And and, and other companies tried as well. There was Premier, there was Eclipse, there was Accord. um, But all of those products were were fairly large failures um, and didn't succeed in what the electronic cigarette industry has done in the last few years, which is to make a a truly satisfying product uh, for a smoker.
0: There's been some innovation in this area. In China, in the mid-90s, uh, there was an attempt at an e-cigarette that was pretty popular. Can you say more about that?
1: Yeah. I, I do know that China is what made the technology popular, but, but the core technology of a heating element that vaporizes a liquid is, is really relatively old technology, going back to the 1960s even. And it just wasn't uh, effectuated until very recently in the last, you know, really 10 years or so with this idea of marrying that concept with vaporizing nicotine.
0: I want to talk also about the history of cigarettes more generally. Sure. Where does the cigarette come from?
1: Um, yeah, it's a really good question. I can tell you that um, what's interesting about cigarettes are um, they were part of this revolution in smoking in this country. So um, at the turn of the last century, the way that people consumed tobacco in this country was they, they stuffed tobacco in their pipe or they put chew in their mouth. And then during the Industrial Revolution, you had this new invention, these machined cigarettes. Um, and they were really made popular by World War One, And it transformed the way an entire population of people interacted with tobacco so they went from pipe tobacco and chew to these machine cigarettes which were initially seen as a poor man's substitute for the real thing
0: Why were cigarettes made popular in in World War 1
1: so you had basically all of these soldiers. It wasn't very convenient to get their their tobacco from a pipe. It required accessories. It required, uh, you know, stuffing it. And you ha- there was all of these sort of accoutrements, and it wasn't certainly very uh, flexible or easy on a battlefield. And so when these machine cigarettes came out, and they were, of course, given away to the soldiers as they were in World War II, uh, it's, it, then all of those sort of soldiers returned home after the war, and they had grown accustomed to, the you know, the machine cigarette.
0: So it was the war effort that popularized cigarettes. Correct. In the 1950s, uh, cigarettes had a second chapter. Yes. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, so the second revolution in the way that smokers interacted with their tobacco happened in the early 1950s. You had Reader's Digest, which was the leading uh, news publication of the day, published their feature story called Cancer by the Carton, and it really shone a light on the tobacco industry. And so they responded with the creation of filtered cigarettes, and at the time, uh, all of the cigarettes that were in existence are what we would today call unfiltered cigarettes. The filter, which was this response to health concerns, uh, was considered when it was initially introduced to be artificial, fake. It was considered to be very feminine. And uh, Marlboro was introduced as a woman's cigarette, ivory tips to protect the lips. And then you had this amazing thing happen in the 1950s where they introduced, uh, in, es- in essence, new and improved technology. Now, the filter, of course, didn't ever really do a good job of filtering. That there was a per- that it was better for you. But of course, it, it wasn't. Uh, but but the perception was that it was a, a new and improved filter. Uh, the, the, there was a masculinization of the product with, of course, most famously the Marlboro Man. And within the span of about five to seven years, filtered cigarettes went from two, three percent of the market to 50 percent of the market.
0: Thanks mostly to the genius of this shift in the marketing campaign by Marlboro or Philip Morris that changed the cigarettes from being feminine, protect the lips, to being cowboys and masculine.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right.
0: So, uh, similar to this pivot moment in cigarettes history, we're now facing a pivot moment in the e-cigarette history, uh, where there's some backlash and people are reluctant to adopt e-cigarettes. Why are people more willing to do so now than, let's say, five years ago?
1: So this is really a technology story. Uh, Five years ago, an electronic cigarette cost $200, was a large, bulky device, required assembly, required charging. Today, uh, you can find electronic cigarettes for under $10, like the ones that we sell. They're simple, they're easy, uh, much better flavor, much better technology. And so in, in a very short period of time we've done what Americans do. We use technology to try to uh, solve really complicated, intractable problems. And and as the technology continues to improve, you're going to see this larger and larger adoption of the new technology.
0: It seems to be uh, attractive from a cost perspective as well, because you don't have the same types of taxes uh, burdening e-cigarettes as the tobacco industry does.
1: Correct. There's, there's, there's o- almost no one is taxing electronic cigarettes globally. Uh, there's only one state in the United States, uh, Minnesota, that's taxed electronic cigarettes. Uh, several other states have tried and failed uh, to get that passed. And and the reason why they failed is because you have this amazing grassroots movement among electronic cigarette users, these people who show up at state legislatures and they say, hey, I was a pack a day smoker for 30 years. And if you tax this and make it more expensive for me to use, you're going to drive me back to cigarettes. And on the strength of that type of grassroots movement, uh, they've been voted, they voted down taxes and. and multiple states now.
0: Incidentally, uh, what is the difference between tobacco and nicotine?
1: So that's a great question. Uh, nicotine is derived from tobacco typically, although it doesn't necessarily have to be. Um, nicotine could be created synthetically. Nicotine could be derived from tomatoes or lettuce or potatoes. It, it occurs in nature. The tobacco leaf is a leaf. and so, but, it's, but the tobacco leaf is the most efficient way to get nicotine because it, it occurs in abundance naturally.
0: Where do you get your nicotine?
1: Um, So we don't, it's something that we haven't talked about publicly just because there's a little bit of a proprietary benefit or a trade secret to the way that we procure our nicotine. Um, But we, for us, one of the most uh, important features is our ability to make sure that we have uh, a process by which we can provide the nicotine in uh, the, the cleanest way.
0: Although I have seen you buy an awful large number of tomatoes, so... (laughs) (laughs) You never know. (laughs) I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Craig Weiss, co-founder of Enjoy, a company that makes the e-cigarette Enjoy King. You've had a, a team of people who have been instrumental. One is Mark Scatterday. Can you talk about him briefly?
1: Sure. M- Mark Scatterday is he's my Johnny Ive. Um, he's just an incredible designer.
0: Johnny Ive, referring to Steve Jobs' designer at Apple, who was instrumental for Jobs.
1: Exactly. So so Mark is that for me. He's just an inc- has an incredible design sense. He himself is an entrepreneur, and when I recruited him, he first started just doing it as a favor to help me and give me some of his um, design expertise. And when I said, Mark, I need you, uh, he said, well, Craig, I, I, I haven't had a job since I was 15, because he was always the employer, never the employee. He was always running his own companies.
0: Most recently being the grip stress ball.
1: Yeah, so that famous grip stress ball that we're all familiar with, uh, the birdseed wrapped in a balloon that that's been out for so long, uh he sold uh, 30 million pieces over a 20-year period of that product. And so I I told them I need you. And we're we're really now focused on the the design of the product and so to answer your question, what's really made the product successful today is the commitment that we made internally that we wanted to make a product that was going to replicate as close as possible the cigarette smoking experience. And the reason for that is you've got something around 44 million Americans who smoke. It's about almost 20% of the adult population. And our thought was, if we're going to try to get them to change a habit, and not just any habit, but a really entrenched habit that many of them take literally with them to their graves, we need to be able to narrow that bridge to familiarity so to make it so short that it's easy to cross.
0: What has surprised you about the elements involved in replicating that cigarette? Like, what is more important to people than you might have thought when you first started this endeavor in a cigarette?
1: I was surprised, having never been a smoker, I was surprised about the throat hit. So I learned this expression about the throat hit, and the throat hit was very important to smokers. And the reason why is because the, the, the scratchiness that they feel in the back of their throat is, is a little bit Pavlovian, but it, it indicates to them that they're about to experience the, the nicotine that they crave. And so that was a surprise to me that that's something that I would think would be something you'd want to eliminate was actually coveted by smokers.
0: I've also read somewhere that the visual element of seeing smoke, the more smoke, the better, was also um, something that surprised me.
1: Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, the reason why I think one of the main reasons why the nicotine replacement therapies haven't been successful over the last 30 years is because they don't replicate the ritual of smoking. So... Being able to do hand-to-mouth and being able to generate this, the what looks like smoke is very important to smokers. And so we realized that with all of the electronic cigarettes on the market, including our own previous OneJoy, they were just too big mm-hmm. and too heavy, and they couldn't even be held in your hand in between your fingers the way a smoker was accustomed to.
0: Environmentally, you know, we have cigarette butts on the sidewalk that are ubiquitous. Are e-cigs going to be—I mean, do they shrink?
1: No. So, I mean, cigarette butts is the number one form of litter in the United States. Um, our product has this lithium-ion battery, we have a recycling program at ENJOY. So we encourage our customers, if they send us back eight uh, spent electronic cigarettes, we'll we'll send them back one free uh, ENJOY to encourage them to send us back uh, the product so we can recycle the batteries.
0: I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Craig Weiss, co-founder of the electronic cigarette company ENJOY. We'll hear more from Craig coming up. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Craig Weiss, co founder of Enjoy, a company that makes the e cigarette Enjoy King. An e cigarette is made to have close to the look and feel and nicotine of a real cigarette, but without the tobacco and smoke that causes the majority of the health complications. The company won a lawsuit in 2010 against the FDA, which freed it from the agency's regulation. What is the story behind, uh, you know, the founding of Enjoy?
1: Sure. So my brother Mark and I practiced law together. Uh, in fact, the four oldest sons were all IP attorneys, and we all practiced at the same law firm that my father had founded almost forty years ago. And we considered ourselves very entrepreneurial, and uh, in 2005, and and both 2005 and 2006, Mark traveled to China, and uh, he saw a a crude version of an electronic cigar, at least what we would call today an electronic cigar at a trade show. He thought that this this would make a great product in America, especially if somehow they could ever get the technology such that they could get the the size down to a cigarette.
0: So he came up with the idea, but it was your firm that founded Enjoy, right?
1: Well, the founding of uh, Enjoy was a venture of the firm. So as a firm, we did lots of entrepreneurial things. So the firm incorporated uh, the company, and, um, and so the, the firm subsidized the entrepreneurial efforts of all of its members.
0: Does he smoke? Do you smoke? Does anyone in your family smoke?
1: No, Mark doesn't smoke. Uh, I don't smoke. No one in the family uh, smokes. And uh, originally, I think it was seen as more of just a market opportunity. It's it's an $80 billion market in the United States. It's an $800 billion market globally.
0: The cigarette market. The
1: cigarette market.
0: Now, you are an entrepreneurial family, and throughout your life, uh, as you were growing up, your father would um, file patents for ideas you came up with. What were some of the ideas that that your father
1: patented? The first idea I came up with that he thought that, that he thought was worthy enough to file a patent application on. I came up with uh, when I was 12 or 13, and uh, we came from a big tennis-playing family. My my brother Mark and my brother Farley were both professional tennis players. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I came up with this idea for a netting system so that if you were going to practice tennis with those tennis ball machines that spray the balls everywhere, they would hit this net and funnel to the center and make it easy to uh, clean up. I I was teased mercilessly by my brothers uh, for, for coming up with an invention that they thought was a testament to my laziness. So I got that patent when I was, I believe, 13. And then when I was 18... 18, I had oral uh, had my wisdom teeth out so I, I went to the oral surgeon to get my four wisdom teeth out and he said uh, you got to keep ice on your face for 12 hours tomorrow and so after walking around with hands on my cheeks with ice packs um, I thought this is crazy so I, I came up with um, uh ice that I, I, I had put in Ziploc bags, and then I got like a headband, and I figured out this way to secure it all to my face. Mm. Uh, and I ended up getting two patents on this medical device for an ice cooling method for, for different parts of your body that would be hands-free.
0: Were any of your ideas or your brother and sister's ideas, and by the way, you come from a family of seven Yes. Si- uh, brothers and sisters, were they ever marketable?
1: Yes. Yeah, so um, my sister Felicia had an idea when she was very young, too. She had a cold. And... Uh, she accidentally dropped her chapstick into her tissue box, and she thought, oh, wouldn't it be great if the tissues were were coated with uh, a chapstick? And she got a patent on that, and she ended up uh, licensing it or selling it to uh, a larger company and and made money from doing it.
0: So did you have the the feeling that, you know what, I am going to uh, be an entrepreneur and run a company one day, uh, although you were not practicing that because you were at your father's law firm?
1: Yeah. You know, the big change for me happened about uh, about five and a half years ago when my father passed away. He'd been really the rainmaker of the firm. And he was not just my, my partner and my father, but, you know, my mentor. And it was a bit of an eye opener that I felt my safety net was gone. And fear is a great motivator. And uh, so I, I started to think about how, how am I going to take responsibility for growing this business that at the time being the law firm? I joined a couple of organizations. I joined EO, Entrepreneurs Organization, mm-hmm. and Vistage, which is another uh, kind of CEO training type of organization. And so initially for the first couple of years, I was just focused on how do I grow my law firm? Uh, and, and it was only when I started to see with the FDA litigation with ENJOY, which obviously um, I, I felt I had some, some, some knowledge of as an attorney that I started to look more at Enjoy and through the lens of this entrepreneurial endeavor with these um, organizations, uh, I started to see myself possibly being able to add value there.
0: In addition to helping to run your father's law firm, you also started a hedge fund predicting patent outcomes. Can you talk more about the impetus for starting that fund?
1: The, The other thing that I think happened that probably helped push me in this role was uh, my youngest brother was a day trader, and uh, I always say day traders typically don't care whether stocks go up or down as long as they respond violently. And he started to notice that the most volatile stocks were these publicly traded companies that were involved in material IP litigation. And he thought, well, wait a second, my brothers are patent attorneys. If they could read the briefs and go to court and tell me who was going to win, I could make a fortune. And so that became the genesis of this idea of how do we leverage our expertise as IP lawyers in this world of the, the stock market and trade? And I created this hedge fund.
0: And what were some of uh, your most successful cases?
1: Probably one of our most successful cases was uh, we did TiVo versus EchoStar, which was a big one right out of the gate. TiVo had sued EchoStar for infringing on their DVR technology patents. And so we went to that case and and TiVo won. And we were in the courtroom uh, when that happened and were able to successfully trade off of that news. Uh, we, We both predicted they were going to win and also were there when it actually happened.
0: Were you running the hedge fund contemporaneous with the Enjoy lawsuit with the FDA?
1: When I was running the hedge fund, I was still practicing law. The FDA litigation was happening concurrently. And my my oldest brother, Jeff, and I, uh, with our hedge fund experience, felt that we had ideas about what was the best way to manage that litigation, and we tried to pass on that information to the then management of the company. And I think it was during that time that we started to feel a little bit frustrated that uh, we knew best how that litigation should be managed, and, and the management wasn't necessarily heeding our counsel. And that's what led to Uh, this annual shareholder meeting in 2010, which is when I became president officially.
0: You became CEO in 2010, which was new for you. How do you think you were able to do it so well?
1: I had an incredible mentor. And um, he was the guy who I, I, who I had been friends with for 10 years. And I asked him to be the chairman of the board of Enjoy, uh, okay. Ellie Wartman. And Ellie had been uh, one of the partners at Benchmark Capital. And they had done eBay and Twitter. Mm-hmm. And he himself, at 29, was the CEO of a $1.8 billion publicly traded NASDAQ company. And as he often reminded me, he said, yeah, and I did that. And I didn't have me as a mentor. <laughs> uh,
0: um,
1: but I, I had him as a mentor. Yeah. And I leaned very heavily on him.
0: How do you know Ellie Wartman?
1: So uh, I was living in Israel in the year 2000, and uh, my oldest brother, Jeff, and I had co-authored a book together about the Americans and Canadians who fought in Israel's war for independence in 1948. And they were all uh, World War II GIs for the most part. And uh, three years after World War II, they, they went to fight for what they thought was another good fight, um, which ended up being the creation of the state of Israel. So uh, the, the book is called I Am My Brother's Keeper. And we were fortunate enough to get the sitting prime minister of Israel to write the foreword at the time, uh, which was Benjamin Netanyahu. And so I was giving a speech in Jerusalem about the book. and. And Ellie was in attendance and came up to me afterwards and uh, congratulated me on the book. And uh, we we struck up a a conversation which turned into a friendship.
0: I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Craig Weiss, co-founder of Enjoy, a company that makes the e-cigarette Enjoy King. I want to shift to the lawsuit because that seems to be an important moment in the company's well-being and, and existence, frankly. Can you explain that?
1: Sure. In 2009, the FDA directed U.S. Customs to, sh- to, to see shipments of our product and a competitor's product, and they tried to claim that they were unapproved drug delivery devices. We filed a lawsuit against the FDA claiming that this was uh, an inappropriate exercise of their drug jurisdiction because we didn't make any health claims or therapeutic claims or cessation claims about our product. Um, In the midst of our litigation, uh, Congress passed the first landmark tobacco legislation in 30 years, the 2009 Family Smoking Prevention and Tobacco Control Act. And the judge in our case agreed with us and granted an injunction saying if the FDA wanted to regulate electronic cigarettes, it could only do so under its tobacco authority that Congress had granted it in 2009. Hmm. And so we, we won an injunction against the FDA um, saying that they could not use their drug jurisdiction, and the FDA appealed, um, and then at the end of 2010, we won our appeal 30.
0: And this was after $2 million of legal fees. Exactly. People contend that you really saved the e-cigarette category. And it was with your patent know-how that you really were able to do this.
1: Well, uh, uh, the, the the knowledge that we had of, of litigation from the hedge fund was most beneficial. And at the end of the day, I, I do believe that, that NJOY can appropriately take credit for creating the electronic cigarette category, or at least the, the legal framework for it to exist.
0: Now, from the inception, you did not mention the potential health benefits of e-cigarettes. Is it because you were conscious of this government chaos that would ensue?
1: Yeah, that, that was one of the, the brilliant ideas of Mark. As a lawyer, he was well aware that if you make health claims or therapeutic claims or cessation claims, that that the FDA can classify you as a drug. And he knew it was critical that we avoid that. And, and, and because the company did avoid that, we avoided the, the drug jurisdiction that would come with it.
0: There was a New York Magazine uh, article about you in 2013 in the summer. Uh, And they talked about uh, healthy Pringles, Uh, the story of Pringles coming out with a rice-based chip that seemed to be healthier, but it didn't do well because people crave fat and they want just something bad. How much was that in your mind, not necessarily the the Pringles example, but how much was, you know, cigarettes being kind of maverick and cool, how much was that in your mind when you wanted to um, not go there to the health benefits?
1: So... You know, there's, there's something very interesting that that's going on in our society which is the products that are better for you that are marketed as this is the healthy alternative are not nearly as big a categories as the products that are marketed as you deserve this or uh, go for it or or that there, where there's no health message uh, you see that whether it's fast food versus diet food you see that whether um, even in the tobacco space so you've got an you know a, a Six to eight hundred billion dollar global tobacco market, and the global ma- market for the healthy alternative, nicotine replacement therapy, is under three billion. So as a result, um, you, you, we see that over and over again. And I remember we used to have the debate early on: even if we could make health claims, maybe we wouldn't, for this reason
0: want to touch on advertising for a minute. In a way, television or TV stations are allergic to uh, advertise e-cigarettes because of the ban on advertising cigarettes. But in 2013, you had your first Super Bowl ad. Can you uh, talk about the import of that?
1: Sure. So what we found when we first went to the television stations with our commercial is there was some obvious initial resistance because there's been a ban on cigarette television advertising since 1970. And we Talk to them about the fact that we weren't a cigarette, we have no tobacco, we're not burning, and we didn't meet the legal definition that would prohibit our ability to advertise on television. And on the strength of that argument, we started to pick up more and more uh, local affiliates in different stations. And for the Super Bowl in 2013, we were able to advertise our commercial in five markets across the U.S., and probably in about 10 million people were able to see that commercial.
0: It reminds me of uh, the 1984 ad that Apple put out when the Macintosh was coming out, also uh, during a Super Bowl, and that was transformative. The words were, I think, you'll learn why 1984 won't be like 1984, a Georgia Orwell illusion. And with the advent of the Macintosh, you're democratizing computers in a way uh, that where big brother, uh, will not be able to control the masses. Did, was that in your mind at all?
1: Absolutely, um, and it's a wonderful analogy, right? Because our our um, big brother equivalent is big tobacco, and and so for us, we, we're, we're trying to send a message that we are not big tobacco, and we're out to obsolete the cigarette.
0: You've made a couple of Apple Steve Jobs uh, allusions. Uh, one was to Johnny Ive, his his right hand design man. Uh, did you just read the Steve Jobs biography, or no? Is- so I,
1: I've I've been using Apple products uh, since. I was maybe 10 years old. So I've actually, for almost, probably about 30 years, I've been using Apple products. So mm-hmm. for me, I was a true believer. I mean, I, I, I did something else very entrepreneurial and, and, and typically everyone is, tells you not to do this, but uh, I remember reading about, about this idea that uh, if you believe that some company is going to ultimately be successful and, and, and take over the world, that you shouldn't diversify. You should, you should kind of push all in. And so in 2002, I thought, That company is Apple. I've used their products for 20 years. I've always loved what they've done. And I took my entire retirement savings and I bought Apple stock. So I I really put my money where my mouth was in in Apple. So I've been a big Apple fan for a long time.
0: I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Craig Weiss, co-founder of Enjoy, a company that makes the e-cigarette Enjoy King. What has been, aside from the successful lawsuit against the FDA, uh, the Food and Drug Administration, what has been a turning point uh, in the company's short history for you?
1: So when we when we won our case against the FDA, we took that legal victory to uh, wholesale. We went to McLean, the largest wholesaler in the country, and we said, um, we're the gold standard in the industry. We're, we're focused only on the most responsible business practices, and we're the only electronic cigarette company in the country that has an injunction against the FDA that they cannot regulate us as a drug delivery product. And on the strength of those arguments, we got into McLean. They're a $34 billion Berkshire Hathaway company, and uh, that, that relationship helped propel us to get into uh, the convenience stores. And if there's $80 billion in cigarettes sold in the United States every year, 75% of that's sold in 140,000 convenience stores.
0: And we're talking about uh... 7-Eleven,
1: 7-Eleven, Circle K. um, You know, in the in the Northeast, you've got Hess and Wawa, and you've got Chevron and Sunoco, So all of these types of chains, yes. And and then it became a bit of a snowball. So as we gained success with 7-Eleven and Circle K and other retailers, uh, no, now we're in Walmart, we're in Walgreens, we're you know we're able to to gain that foothold. We're in Costco uh, to to get that national footprint. This
0: is your life right now. Although uh, uh, you do have family, you have two children, uh, and you're married. I, I see you have a wedding band and it has some Hebrew writing on it. What What is uh, what the Hebrew? Uh, the,
1: there's three words. It says Gamze uh, Yavor and uh, it means this too shall pass. And uh, the story behind it is there's a jeweler in Jerusalem. So my wife and I met in Jerusalem. We were both there on junior year of college abroad. And so we met there. We fell in love there. Uh, we lived there for almost four years uh, altogether. And so it was a very special place in our heart for both of us. And there's this... Uh, this this story about the jeweler who um uh, he, 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 he made the ring for a king and, and it's a fictitious story, it's a fable basically but the, the, the king wanted a ring that would uh, make him feel happy when he was sad and when he was happy kind of bring him back down to earth and so this idea was you know, this too shall pass you could use in both contexts so when things are bad, it's going to be okay and when things are you're riding high, not to lose sight of the fact that, that those highs are also going to pass and it's important to, to think about the, the big picture.
0: That's very interesting. Anything else on the personal front like that?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, for me, one of my primary motivations with Enjoy is um, I have a four-year-old daughter, I have a six-year-old son, and I want them to grow up in a world where they can say to me, so wait a second, I I don't understand. So you used to light these things on fire, and then you'd Mm -hmm. put them in your mouth? I mean, how did that not burn your face? Um, (laughs) And and so uh, that's a big motivator for me. And I I think about it also from the humanitarian context of... um, this idea of you know, my, my wife's actually a rabbi and so uh, i'd like to think that that we're relatively spiritual people and and the, the highest uh and most important thing you can do in in judaism at least is this idea of saving saving a life and repairing the world those are very big contexts
0: tikkun olam exactly which yeah. means
1: repairing the world so that's that's this idea of tikkun olam repairing the world is a, is a uh, big principle in, in judaism and so i i like this idea of repairing the world
0: by the way, we talked a lot about your father. What about your mom? She birthed uh, seven of you. Um,
1: <laughs> my, my mom uh, is an incredible woman. In fact, I, I think you know, arguably there should be a show just about her. Uh, she not only gave birth to children in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, um, and uh, literally was uh, two months shy of her 47th birthday when she gave birth to my little brother, um, but uh, she was also a federal judge for 25 years.
0: So she was, she was eight years old when she gave birth? <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah, a little, a little bit older. But uh, And the children that she gave birth to uh, were, were quite remarkable. So my sister, Gail, the oldest, um, has a Ph.D. from Yale. She's the chair of the philosophy department at George Washington University. My sister, Felicia, has a Ph.D. in clinical psychology. Um, the, the next four boys, uh, of, of which I'm the youngest of those four, uh, all IP attorneys, you know, two of them a professional tennis player, Farley a professional tennis player, and, uh, and and my youngest brother, the, the, the day trader who, who had the idea for the hedge fund. And you? <laughs> yeah, I'm in there somewhere.
0: Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you, it's my pleasure.
0: My guest has been Craig Weiss, co-founder of Enjoy. Coming up, we'll meet Alex Counts, founder and president of the Grameen Foundation, a microfinance organization that helps to provide credit to more than nine million small business owners internationally. I'm Jessica Harris, this is From Scratch.